0: joyful before you. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, well last week uh, we got back into the book of Romans. We started in Romans chapter 4 and we looked at the first test case of Paul's theology that he had spelled out for us uh, in the first three chapters of the book of Romans. And and he put his ideas to the test through the life of Abraham. Okay, he wanted to see and, and demonstrate really that his ideas... His major theological ideas, they hold up under the weight of the scriptures. And in particular, they hold water even in the life of the great Abraham. And he used Abraham as an example to prove two theological ideas that he had spelled out in Romans 1 through 3. First, he proved that everyone really is condemned through sin. We are united in condemnation through our sin. Everyone, everywhere, for all time. Meaning okay that when we die and we all will unless the lord returns first and we stand before god in judgment because of our sin we would be found guilty before god okay paul writes exhaustively about that but then he also writes to prove That everyone can and and really must receive righteousness as a gift of God's grace through faith in Christ. So, as the church, we are united in righteousness through faith in Christ. Condemned through sin, counted righteous or receiving right standing before God through faith in Christ. And he proves it through the life of Abraham. And what Paul proves is huge. It is significant for every person in every generation. And Paul uses the example of Abraham as a test case to prove his ideas from the first 3 chapters of the book of Romans. Okay? And now when we get to verse 6, Romans chapter 4 verse 6, our passage today, Paul is going to take the exact same approach, providing another test case to prove his major theological ideas from the first three chapters of Romans. But he's doing it now, instead of through the life of Abraham, he's doing it through the life of one of the greatest kings, really the greatest king that the nation of Israel had ever known, the life of David, the King David. He says in Romans chapter 4, verse 6, Likewise, so just like Abraham... David also speaks of the blessing of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. He says, David is also going to demonstrate for us. He's also going to prove for us that once again, though everyone is guilty of sin completely apart from our works, we can be credited as righteous before God, receiving right standing before God, and it comes to us through faith in Christ. And our goal today, it's not only to see Paul's theology on display, okay, the, the, the gospel clearly on display through what Paul is writing and through the life of David, but our goal today also is to press into the area that Paul is really pointing us to in Romans chapter 4, verses 6 through 8 which is this area of joy, joy. Now, the life of David, uh, the great biblical king of Israel, it really is, it is a remarkable life, a remarkable story. Okay, David, he was not initially an extraordinary man. If you know anything about the life of David, he was not initially a a remarkable or extraordinary man. He did not come from an extraordinary family. His family, he, he was not like in line to assume the throne in Israel, He was a shepherd boy. David, he was the runt of the litter of his own family. In no way, shape or form was David set to receive or assume the throne in Israel. The throne was held by a man named Saul at the time that David was growing up. And Saul, unlike David, was an extraordinary man. He was big and handsome. A lot of people say he kind of looked like me. And he was the first true king in the nation of Israel, raised up by God. But then Saul, he rebelled against God. God stripped him of his throne. And instead, God raises up David, the shepherd boy, to be the king of Israel. Okay, In a lot of ways, David, he he was an incredible king in Israel. He, He was incredible. He was a man who... Genuinely loved the Lord. He was a man who lived after God's own heart. He was a man who trusted God in some of the most incredible and unbelievable trials and betrayals that we could ever imagine. And he trusted God in ways that would have been so profoundly difficult. But then David, he made one of the greatest errors of his life. He stayed home when he should have been out with his men fighting in war. David stayed home when he should have been leading the army of Israel. He made the decision to lead from the back and to protect himself, protect his own comfort, to sit back in his kingdom and let his people go out and suffer without him. And as David is sitting at home, and his men are fighting his war what happens is david he sees the wife of one of the men of his army bathing one day on a rooftop he's captivated by her beauty and he is full of lust in his heart he covets her okay he violates one of the 10 commandments and then he capitalizes on his power and on his position and on the fact that her husband is off fighting David's war. And he sleeps with her. He commits adultery, violating another of the Ten Commandments. And then to top it all off, to try to cover up his sin, when she becomes pregnant through David, he tries to hide his sin and he ends up brutally having her husband killed, committing murder, violating another of the Ten Commandments. He breaks three of the Ten Commandments outright, completely premeditated, totally intentional. He covets, commits adultery, and murders to satisfy the selfish, lustful desires of his own heart. And this is really important for us to understand. The sin that David committed there It is the kind of sin for which there was no Old Testament sacrifice designed to absolve or remove the punishment or the penalty of his sin. If you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, you know that there were sacrifices, animal sacrifices and offerings that would have been prescribed by God to deal with the sin of the people of Israel. They would slaughter animals. They would pour out their blood. They would give offerings to the Lord to cover their sin, to deal with their sin as prescribed by God. But there was no prescription and no sacrifice prescribed to deal with the kind of sin that David committed. Completely premeditated, intentional act of adultery and murder. There was no sacrifice for that. The prescription to deal with that kind of sin was death. Not death of an animal. If you intentionally commit murder in Israel. You received death. There were no sacrifices prescribed to cover that sin. And when the prophet Nathan comes to David. And he exposes the sin that David had committed. Here's the reality that David was dealing with. There was nothing he could do. To remove his guilt, there was no sacrifice that was prescribed to remove his guilt. There was nothing he could do, and he knew it. And so when he's caught in his sin, all that he can do is to cast himself upon the Lord for mercy. And this is what we have in Psalm 51. Nathan comes, he confronts David, he exposes his sin, and this is David's response because he knows there's no sacrifice he can offer to deal with that sin. He says this, Psalm 51, verse 1, Be gracious to me, God. Be gracious to me according to your faithful love. According to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion completely wash away my guilt, guilt, cleanse me from my sin. I am conscious of my rebellion. My sin is always before me. And against you and you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. He says, so you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. David's confession is this. I am guilty and you are right to kill me. You are right to punish me for my sin. There's nothing I can do to erase the guilt of my sin, but Lord, according to your faithful love, please, please have mercy on me. He says later in Psalm 51 you do not want a sacrifice, or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. He says that because there's no sacrifice designed to deal with the kind of sin that he has committed. And all he can do is this. He says, Lord, please, please, according to your love, have mercy on me. And in God's mercy, ultimately, because of the work of Christ on the cross, God, he does it. He forgives him. He cleanses him from his sin, totally separate from any work that David could possibly do. He blots out his rebellion. He washes away his guilt. He restores a clean heart to this man, David. God does it. God is the one who does this apart from the works of David, separate from any sacrifice he could offer. And so Paul says this in Romans chapter 4, verse 6. Likewise, just like Abraham, David also speaks of the blessing of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart. From works, He says, so David also speaks of the gospel that I have preached to you. That righteousness, right standing is found, not through works that we can do, but through the work of God through Christ that we receive as a gift through faith. And when God credits David as righteous, he restores to him the joy of his salvation. And it is this joy of salvation that Paul makes a point to point us to as he makes this test case through David in Romans 4. The HCSB says it this way. Romans 4 verse 7, how joyful are those, or how blessed are those, how joyful are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. How joyful is the man that the Lord will never charge with sin. And in this, he's quoting Psalm 32. David says, how joyful, how joyful are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. He says this as a man who has been forgiven. He says, how joyful is the man who the Lord will never charge with sin. David is declaring, I am guilty. I'm guilty of sin that I could never possibly erase before God. But God has credited me righteousness as a gift of his own grace apart from my works. And how joyful is the one whose sins are forgiven. How joyful is the man who has been freely forgiven by God. It is a remarkable truth. And Paul proves it through the life of one of Israel's greatest heroes, King David. A guilty sinner made righteous through faith by the gift of God. But where I want us to really drill into in our passage today is this. It's this arena of joy. I want us to really contemplate joy Today, David says, how joyful are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. How joyful is the man that the Lord will never charge with sin. And that's what's true of people who have eternal life through Christ. And so we're going to dig into this little arena of joy that David is talking about. And as we do that, we're going to be answering three questions Related to the joy that David speaks of here in Psalm 32. This will be our outline. Question number one. What is joy? What is joy? What is it that David is speaking of? What is it that Paul points to here in Romans 4? Question number two. Why are some Christians not joyful? David says, how joyful is the man whose sin... The Lord will never charge us in. What what is up with then some Christians not experiencing joy? Not feeling like they're walking in joy. And number three, what is the source of our joy? Where does our joy come from? The first question I want to address is this. What is joy? What is David talking about in Psalm 32? What is Paul talking about in Romans 4? When David speaks of, of how joyful is the man the Lord will never charge with standing, what exactly is he talking about? Now, if you've been around Christian circles for a while, uh, you've probably heard this statement be made. Joy is not happiness. You've heard that before? Yes. Okay. Joy is not happiness. I think we've probably, again, if you've been in Christian circles for a while... Like I didn't just sit down this week and invent that phrase. Okay? We've all heard it. Joy is not happiness, people say. And so yes, okay, Christians, they are or they ought to be joyful in Christ, but joy is not happiness. So they say. But see, this is why we need to answer the question, what is joy? Because When something is defined primarily by what it's not, it leaves room for all kinds of confusion about what it is. In one sense, I understand what people are saying, okay? They're trying to express the fact that happiness can feel cheap or superficial. But what I have observed is this. When we define joy primarily by what it's not, saying it's not happiness, then joy often has no meaning and no reality... In the life of many Christians. Okay. It's like it doesn't actually mean anything at all. We should be joyful in Christ. Or we are joyful in Christ. We have great joy in Christ. It loses its meaning. Okay. Because nobody knows how to define what it is. And everyone is afraid to define it as happiness. Or anything at all that sniffs of anything emotive. Joy in the Christian life, But my observation is this, joy in the Christian life, it's like a trick word with Christians that in a lot of ways just gets used to justify why we're not happy. Joy, I think oftentimes has become a Christianese word used to justify being totally unhappy, melancholy, mopey, even bitter and complaining as Christians. And we say, look, look, Jesus didn't die to give us happiness. He gives us joy. And I'm like, amen, that's great. But let's be careful that we don't define joy in such a way that it loses all of its meaning and instead gets used as the scapegoat to explain why I am so indifferent or discontent or melancholy or mopey or complaining Or whatever it might be as a Christian. Even though we have eternal life through Jesus. Do you know what joy is? It's not less than happiness. It's not less than happiness. It is more than that. It is richer happiness. It is steadier, more consistent happiness. It is a happiness that penetrates the heart deeply. Here's what the dictionary says. The word joy refers to the emotion... See, that's a scary word for Christians. Christians are supposed to have emotions, apparently. It is the emotion evoked by well-being. We are well in the Lord. And it is typically associated with feelings. And that's a scary. Word. We're supposed to have feelings? Of intense, long-lasting happiness. David says, How happy, how rich and steady and intense and long-lasting is the happiness of the one whose sin will not be charged against them. Joy is not unemotional. Joy is not indifferent. Joy is not indifferent to songs about God. Joy is not unemotional when singing about God. Joy is not indifferent or unemotional to truths about God. Joy is not indifferent to gathering with His people or seeking Him in His Word. Joy is not unemotional in prayer or disinterested. Joy is not discontent. Joy is not discontent with life or with life's circumstances. Joy is not emotionally detached. Joy is not cold. Perhaps on a day like today it is. But joy is not bored or unhappy or melancholy or mopey or cynical or self pitying. Joy is not less than happiness, it is more, richer, steadier, more intense, deeper. And David says how rich and deep. And intense is the happiness of those whose sins are covered. How rich and deep and intense is the happiness of the man the Lord will never charge with sin. That's what joy is. It is deeply emotive. And it's what belongs in the heart and the life of the Christian. Great. Intense. Happiness. Rich joy. And yet, at the same time, it's not what we always experience. It is not what we always observe in the life of Christians. In fact, I would argue, in my observation, there is often no significant difference between the joy that I have observed in the lives of many people in the church. And the joy that I have observed in the lives of people who don't know Christ. When we give a real definition to joy. When we give a real expressive. Tangible definition to joy. My observation is. That there are many professing believers who don't seem to have any more joy or a different source of joy from those who are in the world. And so, the second question I want to press into this morning is this why not? Why are some Christians not joyful? Why is it that we can lack this emotional, rich, steady, intense happiness in the Lord? My goal in pressing into this question, it is not to scold anyone for not being joyful. Ultimately, I want to encourage us to actually walk in the joy that we do have in the Lord. Okay? My goal also, it's not to exhaust every possible angle of all of the different things that can contribute to difficulty, In walking in joy, okay? That list would be way longer than we have time for. And my goal is not to get into a conversation in the arena of medicine or to minimize what can be going on medically with people, okay? My goal is not to cover every possible reason a person might struggle walking joyfully in the Lord. Instead, what I want to do is this. I want to give you a few things to consider from the Word of God. Okay, that's the arena that I want us to be thinking about today. And I want you to wrestle with the Lord in the arena of joy through the word of God. And I'm going to walk through about seven different reasons, very briefly, that I see through the word connected to our passage here in Romans 4 as possible reasons for us to not walk in joy as Christians. Okay? And this is just to get us to wrestle with God in this area of joy. Number one. If you are not actually a Christian, then it makes sense that you'd not be full of joy. You would not be bursting with joy. If you're not actually in Christ, if you're not actually a Christian, then it would naturally make sense, in my opinion, that you would not be full of joy. Some people think that they are uh, Christians, and yet they are not. They have not understood the gospel or repented of their sin and received forgiveness and grace through christ and if that is the case then it makes sense you would not be full of joy because david says in psalm 32 and paul quotes him in romans 4 how joyful is the man who the lord will never charge with sin if you're not actually a christian that's not true of you You will be charged with sin. You are still guilty. You are still under the weight of your sin. And so if you're still in your guilt and in your sin, then it makes sense that you would not be joyful, bursting with joy if you're not actually in Christ. Some people are not joyful because they're not actually Christians. They don't know Jesus. They might be coming to church regularly or they might wear a cross necklace or they might Uh, associate themselves as a Christian. And yet, if they don't know Christ, if you do not know Christ, then you will not experience the joy of Christ. Number two, if you don't think that you are guilty of sin, it would make sense to not be joyful. If you don't think you're guilty of sin, it makes sense that you wouldn't just be bursting with joy in the Lord. Perhaps you're here and you think that God will let you into heaven because you are a good person and because you go to church and you try to be a good human being. But you don't realize none of that could possibly erase the guilt of your sin. You don't see the guilt of your sin. You don't know who you have sinned against. And somebody who depends on their own goodness to be right before God is not in a good position to be full of joy, bursting with joy in the Lord. Remember David, he said, How joyful are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. To experience that joy, you have to understand that you are in fact guilty of sin. And if you do not realize that you have sinned against a holy God... And you have no idea what you've been forgiven of. Then it makes perfect sense. You wouldn't be full of joy. This is exactly what Paul spoke of earlier in Romans 4. In Romans 4 verse 4 he says, To the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift. It's just something owed. If you think that God owes you salvation because you're a good person, you go to church, you try to be a good human being, then being a Christian is not going to be a source of great joy. It's going to be a source of great burden. Endless burden. If, if salvation is something earned or righteousness is something earned or something you do. It will be a great burden to try to carry that weight. It will not be a source of joy. You will not be bursting with joy. Number three, if you think God has not actually forgiven you. then you will not be full of joy. Okay, perhaps you are a Christian and you trust Jesus for salvation, but you don't think that God has actually, fully, completely, totally forgiven you. Perhaps you don't trust, like it says in Psalm 103, that God has removed our sin as far as the East is from the West. You think that when God looks at you, it's like He's going to allow you into heaven on some sort of technicality. Like, I kind of have to do it because... You've trusted in Christ, but you don't actually believe that God has removed your sin from you as far as the east is from the west. And that when he looks at you, you have the righteousness of Christ before him. Perhaps you have not understood that God actually loves you and desires your good. And is for you. And has completely, totally forgiven you. And if that's the case, then it makes perfect sense that you would not walk around just bursting with joy and happiness. Instead, we may walk around in constant fear that God is about to just ruin our lives because we deserve it. Number four, if you have forgotten that God has forgiven you, then it makes sense that you would not be joyful. If you have forgotten that God has forgiven you, it makes sense you would not be joyful. You you, you might be in Christ and you might know that He's forgiven you. Like if you were asked the question on the exam, you would get the, the question correct. But on a daily basis, perhaps you just don't actively remember like I actually have perfect forgiveness in christ maybe on a daily basis it just doesn't touch your heart that you are completely and fully forgiven in christ you have the righteousness of jesus christ before god the right standing before god through christ if you have forgotten that god has forgiven you if it doesn't touch your heart on a daily basis it makes perfect sense that you would not be consistently joyful Because there's going to be all kinds of things that happen in life that threaten your joy. So if you're not coming back over and over and over again to the forgiveness that we have in Jesus, then naturally, of course, you will not be bursting with joy. Jesus said it's when you abide in the truth that the truth will set you free. John chapter 8. If you are not abiding in the truth... Consistently walking in and remembering the truth of your forgiveness and the love of God that is shown to us in Christ, then you will not experience consistent, deep, penetrating joy. Number five, if you cheapen God's forgiveness by continuing in sin, you'll not be joyful. Paul says in Hebrews 3 that sin, it hardens our hearts. There's a deceitfulness of sin that hardens our hearts. And if we cheapen God's forgiveness by just continuing to choose to walk in sin over and over again, what we are choosing to do is harden our hearts. And hard hearts are not joyful hearts. Hard hearts are indifferent hearts. Hard hearts are unemotional, detached, cold, cynical, unjoyful. And so if we continue in sin, we we should not be surprised that we do not experience rich, consistent, steady joy. Selfishness does not produce joy. Sinfulness does not produce joy. Sexual immorality does not produce joy. Endless scrolling doesn't produce joy. It just doesn't. And if we walk in sin, typically we will either be weighed down by shame or we will be numb. Those are our options. But we will not be full of God's joy. Number six, if you haven't confessed your sin, it makes sense that you would not be joyful. If you are not confessing sin, it makes sense you would not be joyful. David, he says in Psalm 32, so right after the statements he makes that Paul quotes in Romans 4, right after David says how joyful, how how intensely happy is the one who the Lord will never count his sin against. Then he says this. When I kept silent, my bones were brittle from moaning all day long, groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand, it was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. And then... I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. He says, when I refused to confess my sin, when I was silent, pretending like nothing going on here, nothing to see, I was brittle, your hand was heavy on me, and I was drained. Doesn't that describe so many professing believers At times. But then I finally confessed. And I experienced the joy that comes. With walking in the grace and the rich love of God. If you're hiding sin. Rather than confessing sin. We should not be surprised at all when we have no joy. We should not be surprised when we feel drained and heavy. And burdened if we have not confessed our sin. Finally, seven. If you ignore God's forgiveness and love and instead walk in anxiety, do not expect joy. Don't expect joy. If we constantly walk in anxiety rather than trusting in the grace, the goodness, and the forgiveness of God then it makes sense we would not experience the joy of our forgiveness. You see, anxiety, anxiety is what happens. It's the natural byproduct. So anxiety is not the choice we make, okay? So we don't sit around at home and we're like, "Mm, what am I going to do today? I'm going to be anxious. What am I going to do? Spend a few hours just being really anxious about everything. Nobody does that. Anxiety is not the choice that we make. Okay, the choice that we make is to trust in things that are volatile as the source of our stability, our safety, and our happiness. The choice that we make where anxiety becomes the byproduct, it is to trust in things that are volatile as the source of Of our stability, our safety, and our happiness. So when we choose to trust in our bank account. As the source of our stability, safety, and happiness. We're choosing to ride a roller coaster. That will produce much anxiety over the course of time. When we choose to trust our kids and their success or their health or their good choices as the source of our stability, safety, and happiness, we are choosing to get on a roller coaster that will be full of anxiety. When we choose to trust in our own health, or in our own success, or in our own good choices, as the source of our stability, our safety, our happiness, we are choosing to get on a roller coaster that's full of anxiety. And if we trust in things that are volatile and walk in anxiety, it makes perfect sense that we have no joy and no peace. Philippians 4 Our joy and our peace comes from God. These are all reasons why we might not be experiencing joy, but I want to be very clear about something. I think there's a lie we can believe, and I want to be very clear about this. Okay? Joylessness is not your spouse's fault. No matter how lazy or nagging ...or hurtful they might be... ...joylessness is not your spouse's fault... ...joylessness is also not your kid's fault... ...no matter how unruly... ...or disrespectful they may be... ...joylessness... ...it is not your fellow church member's fault... ...no matter how frustrating... ...or hurtful... ...or rude you think they have been... ...it is not your roommate's fault... Joylessness is not your roommate's fault. Joylessness is not your pastor's fault. Joylessness is not your parents' fault. Joylessness is not your circumstances' fault. It's not your boss at work's fault. Joylessness is not whatever challenge or trial or health challenge... God has placed in your life's fault. It is not someone else or something else's fault if you have no joy in the Lord. We cannot play the blame game as Christians. Challenges will come, challenges will absolutely shape our joy. And this is not to minimize challenges. Challenges will absolutely threaten our joy. But they cannot take our joy. James says this, James 1 verse 2, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. What kind of trials did James have in mind? I believe all of them. All of them. No trial can steal your joy. No matter the shape or the form that it comes in, no trial can take your joy in Christ. Challenges will shape what our joy looks like. That intense happiness we have as Christians, it will be shaped by the hardships we walk through in life. It will. And challenges and trials will threaten our joy. But they cannot take our joy. And that's because of the source of our joy. Question number three is this this is where we're closed. What is the source of our joy? What is the source of our joy? The reason that no trial or challenge can steal your joy is this. The source of our joy is the perfect, unchangeable forgiveness we have in Christ. It is the perfect and unchangeable forgiveness we have in Christ that leads to an intense, emotional, lasting, real, penetrating happiness Go back to Romans 4, verse 7. How joyful, how intensely happy are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. How joyful, how rich and steady and deep is the happiness of the man the Lord will never charge with sin. Never. The real source of our joy, it's the reality that no trial we face in life can threaten or take away the actual source of our eternal happiness which is the forgiveness that we have in Christ. It is the relationship that we have with God Himself for all eternity through Christ. It is the fountainhead of the richest, greatest, deepest, most emotive happiness in the world. And it can never be taken away from us. The Lord will never charge with sin, the one who is found hidden in Christ David says in Psalm 32, Many pains come to the wicked, but the one who trusts in the Lord will have faithful love surrounding him, the love of God wrapped around him. Therefore, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Be glad and rejoice in the Lord, you righteous ones. Shout for joy. Because the faithful love of God surrounds us like a garment that no one can remove. And it is ours through faith in Christ. And it is worthy of the greatest happiness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.